With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. And welcome to another episode of Chatty Broads with Becca and Jess. Well, hey there, broads. Hello. Hello, hello. So we have an episode, um, a part two Yeah, today we're debuting a little second half. We are. Of- and we actually recorded this second half on the f- day that we recorded the first episode. Right. So last week's episode, um, having conversations about race is now going to be extended to this week and we recorded them all at the same time. Mm-hmm. And we just wanted to give a little note up at the top about some things pertaining to these episodes. Yes. First of all, uh, for some people, I think this is kind of the elephant in the room on both last week's panel and this week's panel. Uh, they are not exclusively uh, BIPOC mm-hmm, mm-hmm. panelists. Mm-hmm. And I just wanted to clear this up. Um, we received a lot of feedback when we were initially putting together the panels and we got some feedback suggesting that we have um, white folks come on to help shoulder some of the emotional labor of these conversations. And since posting the first conversation, mm-hmm. we've gotten um, a lot of feedback suggesting that these conversations about race should be exclusively had um, by black and indigenous people of color. Mm-hmm. Especially when it comes to anti-racism, and which is why we have changed the name of the episode series. Um, and we are super grateful to a lot of people who contacted us, a lot of broads who put in, you know, emotional work to have these conversations with us. We're so of, grateful of the for things them. that we could change. Yeah, exactly. And Becca and I, you know, we want to take accountability and we want to get better at this. We want to grow. We loved our panelists last week. They did such an incredible job um, just um, being vulnerable and sharing all these things with us. And then the panelists that we're listening to this week, um, we had an amazing conversation with them as well. Um, But like Becca said, again, in this second episode, um, it's not exclusively BIPOC folk. Yeah. So we considered like, oh, should we even release this episode? And we actually had a couple people review the episode. Mm -hmm. And we decided that there's still a really great conversation to be had uh, on today's show, and we felt through the consulting of a couple other people that the best thing to do was put out this episode because there's some great stuff in it that I think a lot of white people need to hear. Yes, I agree. And off of that, we had, um, like I said, we had numerous broads who have just been um, helping us through this, and uh, we're so grateful for all of them and for their consulting, their input. But specifically next week, we have a broad who um, is willing to come on the show and basically break down some of the things that Becca and I um, could have worked out better. Yeah, some of the curating re- the conversation yeah. and specific topics covered and all of that. Exactly, exactly. And we're, um, I don't know, I when we've been having these conversations back and forth with her, um, she's been 
really like like beyond instrumental in in just spending the time to explain these things. And so I asked her, I'm like, would you be willing to just come on the podcast and kind of publicly hold us accountable for certain things? Yeah. And also maybe help some of our audience grow and process through that. And um, she was willing to. And I think that and I'm 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 really, really looking forward to having this conversation with her. I think it'll be cool because all of this is not about getting things perfect the first time. And I think that kind of mentality is what stops people from even doing anything in the first place. But that's not right. Like the right thing to mm-hmm. do is to show up, get it wrong, and then also like be just as out there with the mistakes and getting corrected. So yeah, exactly. basically next week we're going to get deconstructed and yeah. kind of corrected. And I yeah. think it'll be really fun. By the way, I just wanted to mention that that guest who will be coming on and all of the guests who are people of color on our podcast are being compensated for their time Absolutely. and mental and emotional energy being put in. So this is Absolutely. And those like, reviewing the episode as, as well before yes, they release. Yes, yes, yes. Before this episode released. But um, yeah. It'll so be interesting. It's going to be interesting. And, and again, you know, Becca and I um, want to make sure that we continue to have conversations like this, that we continue to make sure that we are... Um, amplifying voices of the BIPOC community. Um, And this is just, you know, one of the episodes that we hope to have many episodes like this. Um, And then, so that's going to be next week. And then the following week, we're actually going to have a conversation with some indigenous folk. Yes. Um, So very much looking forward to that. So that's going to be what the next few weeks That'll be like like. an indigenous exclusive conversation, exclusively indigenous people in that conversation yes um so So, um with that being said um you know the this episode like i said the panelists were so grateful for them they were absolutely phenomenal um i know i learned a lot in the conversation Mm -hmm. um and if uh you after listening to this have recommendations um feel like there's things that you want us to cover in our next episode next week where we break down some of the things and deconstruct things that we should do better, please let us know. Mm -hmm. Um, We want to hear. So you can send any sort of suggestion or correction or anything to the email askthebroads at gmail.com. Yeah. Well, with that, let's let's get into it. Let's get into it. Hello, broads. Welcome. Welcome back. Becca is in the middle of eating some I Velveeta. I am so sorry. I ha- we just recorded, actually, the first episode of our anti-racism mm-hmm. part two-part series. And Becca is... It was a, fantastic. It was fantastic. And Becca is a breastfeeding queen, and she has to get those nutrients up because we don't want you to pass out on the podcast. I'm this close right Especially now. Especially for our YouTube listeners, if all of a sudden someone falls over in there, I'm just sitting alone. But I'm not alone because, like we said, we had our anti-racism episode last week where we really uh, got into... Had some personal experiences from some broads, and then we talked kind of about, like... Uh, what is racism? A little bit about microaggressions, um, a little bit about emotional labor. And like we said in the last episode, there were so many broads that were willing to come forward and uh, have conversations with us. And we had to make this a two-parter. And these specific broads who sit here on the Zoom were broads that were offering uh 
we have educators, we have public defenders, we have um, uh, teachers, we have, I mean, we, we have the gamut here, okay? And so we had to make this a two-parter. So in this episode, we're going to get a little more into that. And also, I would like to continue to timestamp these because we are recording this on Monday the 2nd. So with that being said, would like to introduce you to our panel of Broad Squad members. Thank you so much for being here. We have five Broad Squad members uh, today. So can we have a little introduction um, and, you know, a little bit about who you are, um, what you do, and why you emailed us when we extended the uh, invitation, invitation to join us in this conversation. Exactly, exactly. So um, do we want to start with Ashna? Sure, I can go. Sure. Um, my name is Ashna. I am a PhD student in counseling psychology at Purdue University. Um, I grew up in India, so I'm ethnically Indian. I have lived in the U.S. since 2012, so it's been a really long time. Um, I emailed Jess because I've been teaching about racism in the classes I teach through Purdue, so I've been teaching primarily undergrads. Um, I started out being really bad at it and wanting to just fail every student that said a racist <laughs> thing. Um, and now I'm at a much better place where I'm able to like, both protect myself but also know how to engage with students and meet them where they're at. Mm. Um, what else about me? I guess right now I'm nearing the end of my program, applying, we'll be applying to an internship thing next year. Um, as part of my responsibilities, I see clients, I teach, I take classes, and also take care of my cat at home. I'm Megan. Um, I am in Wisconsin. Um, I am Hispanic. My mother is Puerto Rican, um, but my father is white. So, um, even though I am white passing, I do have some Puerto Rican Hispanic heritage. Um, I am a public defender in the appellate division, um, with the Wisconsin state public defenders. I graduated from law school just this past May. Congratulations. Um, thank you. <laughs> and I in undergrad, I studied sociology, anthropology, political science, gender studies, and race and ethnicity studies. Oh, um, and I reached out to the broads um, because I think that racism in our criminal justice system is a really important um, piece of our overall discussion about racism in the United States. And um, I come at it from a more historical sociological perspective and um, sometimes it can add a valuable context to a overall discussion about racism in the U.S. Excited to talk about that because we touched on it briefly in our last episode. But I think it'll be great, like you said, to get some historical context and and really get into the facts of how our justice system is flawed and racist. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Megan. Amrita? Yeah. Hi, I'm Amrita. I am a teacher, eighth grade social studies teacher in East LA. Wow, bless you. <laughs> so much bless you. Um, yeah, this, I'm working at a school um, for, this is my a new school I'm working at this year. So I met all the kids virtually and middle schoolers don't show their cameras. So I'm like talking to a black screen all day, basically. Wow. Basically talking to myself. Um, mm -hmm. So that's fun. <laughs> Um, 
I moved out here uh, from New York about a year ago. So I'm a new person in California. I'm also um, in the master's program at Cal State at Long Beach. And uh, the reason that I signed up for this is obviously I love like Bachelor and uh, listening to the podcast. And you just also see all of like the fan base and how crazy I would, I guess you should say crazy, but just like how <laughs> a lot of the things that are said on social media. Mm -hmm. um, but it's also things that I've had to deal with as an educator, um, talking with um, parents of white students and interactions that I've had even from my childhood and thinking of the friends that I've had and having to communicate with them about like all of the um, injustices going on. So it's just something that I wanted to like further the conversation on um, in a space that I feel comfortable doing that as well too. Mm, thank you. Amanda? Hi, Amanda. Um, I'm, a, I'm biracial, so I'm Latina and white um, Mexican, but um, I'm from, my family's from LA when LA was Mexico. So, like it gets really complicated when people are like, oh, when is the last person to like migrate? Um, hmm. and it was like Los Feliz is named after a like great, great, great ancestor. So wow. I'm like very Californian, um, but I live in the Bay Area. I'm originally from Palm Springs. And so I love that Claire was filming in the desert. That just, like, <laughs> <laughs> like, I know La Quinta. <laughs> from Cathedral City. So <laughs> I'm hot out there. Um, and yeah, I'm, a, I'm also a middle school teacher. So it has just been super challenging. We just got to see kiddos, like a tiny group of them for the first time today. So after not having seen them since March, um, it's definitely quite a big day. Um, but I teach Spanish, a culture and identity class, and I do parent ed. Um, and my students are all um, Latino or Black, and they're predominantly migrant families. So we are in like a tiny little Catholic school. And so my my work really has to do with in my culture and identity class of how do I give Brown and Black students the tools to navigate, hmm. to get full ride scholarships to these really elite, predominantly white high schools. And so how do they also have the tools to talk about microaggressions and stereotypes and bias, um, which is daunting, I think, to like try to break that to 13 year olds. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I'm in a graduate program up here at University of San Francisco in international and multicultural education. So this is my thesis work. So it just felt super fitting. And yeah, just like what Amrita said, to be in a community that like I thrive off of knowing that I can come home and watch some like really trashy reality <laughs> and like not think about racism for a hot second. Mm. So it's nice to, yeah, nice to be able to kind of blend the two worlds. Mm. Amazing. Thank you. All right. EJ? I'm EJ. Um, I'm a public health student at the University of Washington, um, and I'm focusing on public health genetics. Um, I'm really interested in embodiment of trauma and how the relationship between our gene and environments like develop. Um, and I reached out to Jess. Oh, also, I'm white. That's the perspective that I'm coming from. I reached out to Jess because I just see racism as tied to nearly every aspect of health, whether it be like access to healthcare or the quality of care or measurable health outcomes. Mm -hmm. um, I think that health is like so important when we're talking about anti-racism. Hello, Broads. Before we jump into some messages from our sponsors, we just wanted to make a note that any revenue from this episode will be donated to organizations that go towards both educating and fighting 
racism actively in the United States. And of course, like we said earlier in this episode, all of our BIPOC panelists will be paid. Um, So let's chat because the temperatures are starting to drop as we head into fall and winter, which is my in my personal opinion, the most magical time of year. Literally, I walked outside earlier this morning and the air smelled crisp. Yes. A lot of people might be rolling their eyes because it's LA and it's like 60 degrees. But to me, it felt crisp. It was freezing. (laughs) It was absolutely freezing. And I'm like, wow, this means winter is coming. And that means it's time to get ahead of taking care of your immune health. Lucky for you, Care Of is here to bring you a personalized, research-backed supplement routine that keeps you healthy all year long. I can't even tell you how much money and time I've wasted researching and buying supplements throughout the years. But Care-of has really taught me it's quality, not quantity, that matters most when it comes to your supplements. And if you've ever been confused about just what it is you need in your life, let Care-of do some of the legwork. You're going to start off by taking their in-depth five-minute quiz about your current lifestyle and your health concerns and your wellness goals. And then Care-of will use those results to create a personally tailored approach to your health needs. And not only that, but for each each recommendation, you'll get all the information you could possibly want, why it's being suggested for you, where it's sourced, and the science behind the effects. Uh, when I first took the quiz, I was honestly shocked at the amount of information they give you, but it took away any doubt or confusion that I had accumulated after years of trying to navigate the vitamin aisle at my grocery store. Um, I was looking primarily for supplements to support my energy levels, and it's only been a few weeks uh, since I started that round with Care-of, but I gotta say, so far, so good, Broads. For 50% off your first Care-of order, go to takecareof.com slash chatty50 and enter code chatty50. Again, if you want 50% off your first care of order, it's a pretty good deal. Go to takecareof.com slash chatty50 and enter code chatty50. Thank you, care of one of my favorite sponsors. Mm, love. Well, Broads, 2020 is wrapping up, which for me typically leads to some internal reflection. What did I do with the year? What have I been able to learn? What do I still want to learn? And if you didn't get to tackle the new skill you were hoping to, I've got good news. There's still time do what I did, and you can join Skillshare to help you get or stay inspired through 2020 and beyond. Um, Did you know that I'm almost done finishing my art degree, but because it's spread out over such a length of time, I'm taking an advanced painting class, and so I need a little refresher on painting. Skillshare is perfect place for that. Oh my gosh, amazing. Um, So it's an online learning community with thousands of inspiring classes for creative and curious people people with expertly taught classes in subjects like graphic design, creative writing, music, and even fine art, painting, like I was talking about. Mm -hmm. There's something that will pique everyone's interest. And as a member, which by the way is less than $10 a month with an annual subscription, you'll have access to hundreds of hours of workshops and classes that can easily fit into any schedule. It was honestly so hard to pick which class to start in the recent days. Um, But there was one class that I've had my eye on called Become a Greeting Card Designer, taught by Ann Bowman. And here's the thing. I've wanted to make my own Christmas cards for years. I think it's such a cute personal touch. Thank you. But unfortunately, I usually remember that I want to become a Christmas card making expert (laughs) around December 23rd. (laughs) Um, But I know this year, it's the year. I'm going to do it. I'm going to commit to it. And with the help of Skillshare, um, it's going to be so much easier. And that's probably going to be way better. Me trying to teach myself that? No. Mm. Come on, Ann. You're going to teach me. Um, (laughs) There are so many classes, though, really, Broads. You have to go on their website, scroll through. You're going to be wowed at the variety and the amount. There are so many. You can explore your creativity at Skillshare.com slash Broads, and the first 1,000 people to use our link are going to get a free trial of Skillshare Premium Membership. So you're going to get free access to thousands of classes 
for a limited time. And you can be one of those first 1,000 to sign up at Skillshare.com slash broads. That's Skillshare.com slash broads. Be one of those first 1,000 people. Hmm. Well, broads, as you can see, we have a broad group. Yes, I'm we very do. Excited about. I'd love to get the opportunity in this episode too to be able to kind of touch on each person's niche mm-hmm. too, because there, I think that each one of you represent like a really important or the knowledge of different components of racism in our country, mm-hmm. and uh, or how to break down racism in our country. So I think that would be fantastic at some point to be able to do that, throwing that out into the universe so that we make it happen. <laughs> um. But where should we start? Maybe personal experiences, if just to touch on that briefly, of how you all specifically got into your field um, mm. and and if there were uh, personal situations, why that occurred, etc. Um, I can start it off. Um, I actually have a twin brother uh, that I grew up very close with, um, but we also grew up in a very um, suburban, I would say upper middle class Um, predominantly white area and I saw the struggles that he had as a black male Mm -hmm. um, growing up in that city and that kind of went along for a long time like through high school and even through college and his adulthood as well Um, so that's something that was personal to me that made me want to get into education and specifically right now I am studying disciplinary measures um, that are impacting black students at a very disproportionate um a level and how like that has like changed throughout the years and how like how these uh practices started why they started the changes that we're seeing but also the changes that we still need to make in education um so it's me like wanting to step up like i've also been a part of these systems to an education that have placed a lot of um, discrimination mm-hmm. and you can just say like racism um, towards uh, different groups of uh, minorities and I want to make that change in a way that I can mm-hmm. and I guess like the way that I see it is I need to be within the system to try mm-hmm. to change things and even if it's I obviously can't change like the world and how the entire society thing uh, sees things but if it's just like that that one child that like you inspire and like they can take something with them. Um, that's something that keeps me motivated and keeps me going. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So I am biracial. So I think like when you are raised in like two different cultures, you're always told that you're not enough of something. And so it's like really challenging to navigate like the slurs, frankly, of like people saying that, Oh, you know, you're, an Oreo, you know, you're just dark on the outside and white on the inside, like things like that. And so, or like asking my, my, my mom is blonde hair, blue eyed. And so just like asking her or like asking me, Oh, are you adopted when you see your mom? And it's like, that's disheartening. And so for me, it was always, I mean, it's selfish. Like I wanted to get into racial justice work because I couldn't really find my place. Mm -hmm. Um, I think just wanting to do more like inner work and identity work. And so I knew I wanted to be a teacher since I was like really little. I think I tried to convince myself for a long time that I wasn't going to be, but I definitely found a really cool intersection um, working at a DEI consulting firm in Baltimore the year after Freddie Gray was murdered. Mm. Um, And just like bringing folks together to talk about social justice issues, but predominantly violence and murder um, to unarmed black folks. And so 
for me, it was like, well, if I've studied education and I have this background now in DEI, how can we really bridge these two worlds? And for me to be able to normalize the conversation, I think is just my biggest thing. I just wish anyone growing up, I grew up in a really white community, white suburban community that I love, but like how I would really would have loved any conversation about race. And so, Hmm. yeah, I think just wanting to be the type of teacher that I wished I had had. I can go. So I grew up in West Virginia, which is a predominantly red state. Um, So I saw a lot of injustices happening all around me when I was growing up. Um, But I was pretty lucky that I had a liberal family um, my grandpa worked for the ACLU and really exposed us to issues of social justice at a really young age. Um, when I went to undergraduate, I started studying psych and bio, and I became really interested in just the intersections between psychology and biology. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I found my public health genetic program, I was just like, oh my God, thank God. Because it's like I get to take hard science class, but a lot of my classes are rooted in like bioethics and talking about like ethical, legal, and social implications of, like, genetic technology. Next, um, I, growing up in Wisconsin, I grew up in one of the most racially segregated and racially unjust states in the country. Um, I grew up in a very, very white, conservative suburb of Milwaukee, and the racism um, against people from Milwaukee primarily Um, Mexican immigrants and Black people in Milwaukee was explicit. Um, And I thankfully had fairly progressive parents, um, especially on my mom's side, who migrated from Puerto Rico as a child um, and instilled very progressive values into myself and my siblings. Um, And I wanted to be able to use the natural skills and talents I have to be an advocate to fight racial injustice. And I found that my skills lended themselves fairly well to the legal field. Um, And while in law school, I learned very quickly that public defenders are really on the front lines of fighting racial injustice in our criminal system. And some of the hardest working lawyers I know are criminal defense attorneys who are faced with um, not only systemic oppression, but also um, human beings uh, who refuse to recognize the systemic Mm -hmm. oppression that they're participating in. Um, On top of dealing with um, clients who are going through some of the worst moments of their entire lives. So um, I became very passionate about this field of work because it really is, I feel like, the front lines of fighting racial injustice in the U.S. So what got me into racial justice work? Like my identity as a racial person grew along with my understanding. So when I moved to the U.S., I'd never been called a woman of color before. I didn't even know what that meant. And so coming into college, all of these people were reading me as a woman of color and I had like no idea what was happening. So Mm. like I would notice that all of my white friends were being invited to parties, but I wasn't, but I was like, okay, that's cause like, I'm not cool enough or whatever that was at that time. And then as I started learning more, I was like, Oh, racism exists. 
And then the Michael Brown killing happened. And there was a lot of protests around that. And that's really when I was like, like, this affects me, this affects everyone. And like, from then, it really just didn't feel like something that I couldn't be involved in. Mm. Um, And then getting to Purdue, I realized I'm a good teacher. And I like, enjoy being in the classroom and working with undergrads. And so it feels like this is such a great way to do the racial justice work in an environment that I already like. So what we touched on the last episode is that racism is, uh, oh God, they said it perfectly, but it's like the intersection of power with discrimination at the same time. So maybe we could talk a little bit about these power structures. What is it in our society that does give people privilege white people privilege and power or white passing people in our country? Because I know some of you are experts on the justice system, on education, on all those different things. So if anyone wants to just hop in and start talking about an example of a structure of power that exists that maybe like people don't know about or take for granted. I mean, education is huge. Um, That. I mean, I'm an educator, so that comes to mind, but it's like down to enslaved people not being able to learn how to read and write, right? And then like separate schools were created. So it's like there was never equal footing for people of color to have equal education. And when that happens, right, like at the founding of, not at the founding, like um, when when racism is upheld, right? Like even after slavery is abolished, Jim Crow era exists. So there's still deep segregation. So it's like never, it's this never ending thing where like even today our public schooling is funded by our tax dollars, like by our property taxes. So if you like ever drive around in like your own neighborhood, you know which schools are going to be better based on the tax money. Um, Mm -hmm. So like which houses are nicer. And so it's like, really challenging when we think about education is a system, right? And we want each kid to like walk away with the same level of understanding of human decency and how to be a good citizen. And like people are starting off at different, totally different playing fields and places. Wait, are you saying so that if you live in a school district, the homes in that school district and how much those owners pay in property taxes is going to determine the funding for those schools in the district? I had heard someone say this before, but I wasn't sure if that was like actually the case, which is so crazy to believe. Do you know when that originated by any chance? Oh, gosh, I don't. But honestly, like my boyfriend's reading The Color of Law right now. So I'm just like hearing (laughs) about like this all at the same time. And so he is talking to me about and I'm like, real estate is not as important to me as education. (laughs) So he's like, not my my jam. But um, he has been like explaining to me the laws, like deeds in homes will like specifically say that like you cannot sell this home to a black person. And so it's like, so there's white flight. Um, and so white people would leave neighborhoods, leave downtowns to go into suburbs, like the creation of suburbs really messed everything up. I'm really conflating these things. Also, I'm speaking like very broadly. I want to say that. No, that relates um, to something I looked up in preparation, which is like how these systems are connected, right? So you're talking about education and then housing comes in. Um, So I'm sure some people y'all have heard about redlining, which is when back 
in the olden days, so to speak, not that long ago, people would draw red lines around black neighborhoods to like say, don't rent to these people or charge them higher mortgage, don't sell them homes. And so then that happened and then that carries forward to today, right? And so then you have neighborhoods that are white, that are wealthy and have better schools. And then that just keeps carrying forward throughout too. So who can go to SAT classes, for example, the SAT itself is also racially biased and racial bias is written into it. And then you get to college and then like, who are you reading in your classes, right? Like I could go through all the readings in my college and I would, maybe 5% were non-white individuals who's teaching the classes. Like, who are you seeing around you? And like those inequities just keep building and never really go away. Hmm. Yeah, building on Ashna's point too, um, empirical research is one of these systems that's really uh, I think people hold empirical research to such a high standard because um, because of the way that Western societies have like put medicine and scientific like knowledge on a pedestal, right? Mm-hmm. But a lot of the time we have to ask ourselves like, where is this research based in? And inherently, it's based in a Western perspective or eugenics, like directly. <laughs> yeah, I can go into a whole thing about eugenics. I mean, I'd actually, yes. yeah, I'd love to hear you actually talk about it. If you have any examples of like how our medical system was basically based upon science that was trying to prove that white people are superior to, to black people or to brown people. Cause I think a lot of, I think a lot of people don't know about this. Like don't know that yeah. please. Yeah. I'd love to hear. Yeah, that. Um, I think you're touching on the main point, which is that like, Race is a social construct, but scientifically, historically, we've tried to find the biological, like, source of race, right? Um, But that's inherently flawed and has led to movements such as eugenics, where people who don't have what was seen as, like, a perfect genome were discriminated against. Um, And, you know, even in all genetics research, there's this underlying, like... uh, there's an underlying perspective that race is somehow biologically linked to our being um, or to our DNA. But, and that was apparent in like uh, James Watson, for example, he's like now like this huge known racist, even though he was like the discovery or discovered like DNA double helix. Um, so specifically with genetics research, there's a longstanding history of like how racism is tied into it. Because was the was the goal to try to like prove the the separation between races and try to group one into I remember reading something like during slavery, there was a whole group of people that were trying to literally prove that this whole group of people were closer to animals. Therefore, it was it was actually ethical to treat people and use these people as animals because they were separate from white people who were their own race of human that these people were not. Yeah, exactly. And it was used back in like uh, the early 1900s. We were using eugenics to sterilize, do like horse sterilizations of people because we thought that they didn't have the right set of genes that would amount to an offspring that was like what they saw as beneficial to our society. Oh my God. What's crazy too is like the points everyone's making about housing and education and um, medicine and science being used to support white supremacy is 
how connected it is also to our criminal justice system. And um, oftentimes when I'm talking to people about how our criminal justice system wasn't a mistake and it was designed specifically as a form of um, white supremacy um, to purport it and to encourage it. And um, I start off usually talking about the scientific revolution, which happened around the 1500s in in Western Europe, um, which laid the foundation for the age of enlightenment in the 1700s. which all of that was based on this concept that authority and legitimacy in society is derived from this social construct we call reason. Um, And it required an emphasis on science or the scientific method um, as its source of legitimacy. Um, And it created this facade of unchallengeable realities or ultimate truths that um, we're beyond just religious teachings. Now we have a group of primarily wealthy white men telling us that these are true things about the world because they're science, no matter how Hmm. problematic or um, incorrect they were, they were used specifically to oppress people. Um, And because of that science and because of our ability then to use science to justify uh, white supremacy and um, other systems of oppression like misogyny as well, we were able to justify colonialism and capitalism and enslavement. And our criminal system only exists because of capitalism and colonialism. Um, Once we decided to pass the 13th Amendment and abolish slavery, um, we actually made a caveat in the 13th Amendment that said, well, actually, we're going to allow you to um, indenture people or enslave people if they have committed a crime as a form of punishment. And before the 13th Amendment, so before 1865, we didn't have a system of policing, really. We didn't have a system of uh, prisons or a criminal court system to incarcerate people until the 13th Amendment created slavery as a legal opportunity to punish incarcerated individuals. So... um, What's crazy is the connection between, you know, the, the, the science to support white supremacy and white supremacy to create a criminal justice system that now has a policing system that uses redlining and housing and segregation to over-police Black neighborhoods so that we can find the people we want to incarcerate, so we can re-enslave them. Um, and it's fascinating to see how how deeply ingrained all of this really is and intertwined. Right. And even when you leave the criminal justice system and you are a criminal, you can't vote. I mean, we're assuming that this is a person who's a felon. You can't vote. Mm-hmm. You're probably going to have a really difficult time getting a job Um so on so forth you know it's like then that restricts your ability to just live a normal life you're then basically forever enslaved by this system even if you technically exit it 
Right. And our, our, our prisons are designed to dehumanize people, to torture them, to enslave them and abuse them for their labor and then spit them out um, in such a terrible condition that it's practically impossible not to come back or to literally keep you there until you die. I work um, at a work release center, so folks who are on house arrest and seeing that has been truly heartbreaking. Mm. Just like, it's like, so you want these people to fail, right? Cause you, they have to pay for their ankle monitors. So someone who already has trouble getting a job cause they have a record, you're charging them about 150 bucks a week and just expecting them to pay it. And then they can go back to prison if they go late on their payments to prison. And it just, ah, it drives me nuts. And like, I think this experience has helped me see how the prison system goes beyond jail, right? It's probation, it's house arrest, Mm -hmm. and all that's happening in there too, which is also very messed up and racialized. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I have a, oh yeah, please. Sorry, as an educator and um, being a teacher in like different uh, communities and you see how much like the criminal justice system has also influenced our education system, Mm -hmm. which is just like sad is like how you guys are talking about like the restraints that are put on people um, once they are incarcerated and that's our education systems are also modeled off of that as well. So like we had the movement of schools that are like no excuses and zero Mm -hmm. tolerance policies. And that was based off of like the war on drugs and the policies that were built during that time. Um, So it's just, it's sad to see this impacting students as well at such a young age. And then it's putting them into a box that it's so hard to come back up from and to like get on like the normal uh, level, like grounded with um, the rest of society. Um, So that's just something that's just frustrating to see and like why I do the work that I do. And I'm sure that what the work that you guys do as well and just how rooted racism is within our country. Well, and of course, and then if you have parents, it's like literally everything is, is interlinked, right? Because, and it's so, it's not funny, but it's like, I don't know what, what word you call it, but when people claim certain things like, oh, the issue is broken families. Well, Mm. where do the broken families come from? They come from, okay, people who are incarcerated, not to mention if we're just going back to slavery about how families were direct like for a reason pulled apart and then that creates which i'm sure you know about this ej way more than i do but you have intergenerational trauma that that's then passed down literally through your dna and then on top of that if you have an incarcerated parent who's then absent you know that then directs directly impacts your life maybe you might be in foster care and you never even have a permanent home for your life and then what life are you bringing your children into from there and it's like all of this is completely intertwined there's no way to separate it all and the racism continues right we have the like ice centers now where they are separating families and like here we are just watching and like well not just watching people are doing things but still they're doing the same tactics right in front of us and like forcing hysterectomies on women right so like saying like which just plays into eugenics 
right? Mm-hmm. Of just saying that, well, you're not fit enough to parent, which is literally what EJ was just talking about. And, you know, all these systems are impacting, like, how COVID-19 is, like, disproportionately affecting people of color, too. It's also related. It's just so, like, it's so shocking to see what you all are saying is it's, like, the same story, second verse that's been happening year after year. And so when we feel like, oh, okay, so we've moved on from this. So you have people now going, please, that was however many years ago. It's like, no, we're ba- we're reinstating the same systems over and over. It just looks a little different now because maybe the year's 2020, so things are a little different, but it's the same foundation. So I'm, you know, from, for, for example, how I'm, grew up in like a very like it was very white uh you know wealthy suburban area the things that you all are sharing i knew nothing about right nothing and then recently i was going through some of my old history and science books and let me tell you that was upsetting I, I, I legit opened these books and I was tearing pages out, showing my mom, who my mom, you know, we did some homeschooling, wonderful woman, but I'm like, what the fuck is this? And so when we talk about education and numerous of you are in education, what are what are ways um, when we are trying to move forward in anti-racism that things can start to change? Like, what are these things that are the, the children are learning? Uh, what does that look like? And just jumping off of that, I wasn't even taught in school. I don't think a lot of us were that like, literally, it wasn't like a group of 300 Native Americans that were killed. Yeah, that That's was sort of, of the like the way that I pictured it in my head is groups of like 25 people that were randomly off throughout the country when in reality i think the low estimate is what three or four million on the very lowest scale and then upwards of you know 20 or 30 million i mean that was something i just didn't know and then when i was i learned that maybe two years ago someone said that and i was like no that's bullshit and i looked it up and i was like oh my god like we literally killed millions of people to colonize this place like we are living on one country that is yeah, just a giant burial grounds for the people that we, we meaning, you know, my colonist ancestors slaughtered. Anyway, back to your question, though. <laughs> How do we move forward through education? I mean, I think we have to look at like racism is taught and learned. And mm-hmm. that is like a lot of people are doing a lot of unlearning, but we have to look at how we are I mean, as, um, as has been said earlier, you know, it's like, are we looking at the content that is being taught and are we just focusing? I mean, I, I work with little ones. And so if we just focus on heroes and holidays, so if we just focus on Thanksgiving being this like peaceful, like this peaceful coming together to break bread, which it wasn't right. Or if we just focus on MLK, like ending racism, which he didn't right? Or we just focus on Cinco de Mayo which literally is racist. Um, But (laughs) right. Like I think we have to create critical thinkers. And so for me, I really want to focus on like, are we creating students who feel comfortable in asking questions Mm -hmm. so that if you're asking questions, right? Like I had a student who very candidly asked like, wait, what is the difference? Because I genuinely don't know of like all lives matter versus black lives matter. And it was a genuine conversation. And so if we cultivate curiosity, I think we can cultivate critical thinkers. And so if we have students who are like, wait, that white guy did not come here 
Columbus did not come here and like peacefully have a meal with indigenous people. And like, where are indigenous people? If we like start to have students asking these questions, then they're going to be able to critique all sorts of systems of power. So like anti-racist work, yeah, they're looking at social justice through like a race lens, but then they'll also do it through gender and sexuality Mm -hmm. and socioeconomics. Like anti-racist is awesome. And it will like open up the door to a lot of other really awesome equity but I think that teachers are really afraid to talk about race because I think that they're really afraid that they're going to mess up. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a situation this past year. I was working in a private school um, with predominantly white students. Um, and when like the George Floyd murder happened um, and then the protests after that, I had to deal with like white parents and uh, students telling me what racism is and why they face racism from black people before and their all of their situations that they went through. So I don't work in that community anymore. That was definitely something that pushed me out of there. Mm-hmm. Um, for the most part, I have worked in communities of color. But I do wonder what is happening in these areas that are predominantly white, um, say predominantly conservative as well uh, within their education. Uh, Because I know like growing up, what I learned in history class is not what I teach today. Mm -hmm. But you also hear about that we are gonna start these diversity classes and these anti-racism curriculum. And then I believe Trump slammed that and said that that's unpatriotic to do that. Um, So I do wonder what's happening. I can't say I like know this from experience, but what is happening in these other um, communities besides just like the communities of color and uh, minorities and how are those conversations going? And I think that's something that I push like my white friends is just how are you communicating with the family and the people around you? Mm -hmm because I can't always do that. And I don't have the uh, emotional energy to do that as well. Um, Because when that did happen, I just was coming home from work, like just Mm. so frustrated and just like feeling just so much pressure on me as a black teacher to Mm. teach racism to white students. Mm. It was, it was a lot. Um, So I'd love to have kind of an open conversation and see what people think about this because it's something that I've been mulling over a lot recently. Um, My opinion as I've thought about kind of what you're saying, Amrita, is that like I've seen a lot since June, um, white people talking with the rhetoric and I've participated in myself in the past of like, if you disagree with me, block me. If you don't agree with what I say, unfollow Um, you know, we can disagree on pizza toppings, but we can't disagree about racism, which like I completely understand where all of this is coming from. It's like I don't want to surround myself with like bad people. But I've been thinking about how as white people, maybe that's actually counterproductive to what we really should be doing. Um, And I've sort of just been thinking about like, because we have privilege, maybe we should be shouldering the burden of not only having difficult conversations, which sometimes can be translated into just like calling people out on Instagram and just being like, you're a racist fuck. But like, 
engaging in relationship with people who disagree with us, um, if we feel like we can handle the emotional weight of that and if we're not maybe marginalized by the beliefs of those people because that can get kind of complicated when you have you know a queer queer identities and all that sort of thing where you're like I don't feel safe engaging with these types of people but I'd love to talk a little bit more about sort of that in the conversation about what it means to be an ally and not just show that you're in it with people of color but also show that you're willing to be in it with fellow white people who don't get what's up. Yeah. I mean, one thing that I've been having discussions with white friends and white family about this too. I mean, it's a very complicated thing, right? Um, But one thing I've learned is that white people and white passing people have access to white circles and white communities in ways that um, black people, indigenous people, other people of color don't have. Um, And because of that, we should use our white access, our access to other white people to talk to them about racism. Um, And I find that especially with family members, right? Because to some extent, you know, some things get complicated, but to some extent, your family is your family and you're going to have to um, navigate tough conversations in all different categories and having Racism as one of those categories is very important. Um, your parents vote, your siblings vote, your aunts and uncles vote, um, and that impacts people's lives. Um, and uh, so I, I've been on both sides of that discussion saying at the same time, why legitimize racists and why um, give them a platform, mm-hmm. but also, you know, use my whiteness and my white passingness to access white circles and the education that I have, the experiences that I have to further these discussions. Yeah, I wholeheartedly agree with that. And coming from an intersectional perspective too, like I identify as queer and there's so much racism in the queer community and so many queer people think that they're exempt from being racist. Um, And it becomes even more important to have those kinds of discussions with people in your community. And too, I think there's a lot of work that needs to be done in the Latinx community. There's colorism. And so if you are of darker skin, like there are names that you get called, like that are, I mean, they're basically the end. They're not the N word, right. But they, um, I don't want to repeat them live, but you know, and we look at like Loteria cards, you know, something that's like, very common in Mexican culture and like the racism that happens on those cards, like just because we're part of the BIPOC community does not mean that we get to like sit by and be like, Oh, well we experience it too. Like, yeah, we absolutely like have experience. Like we hold this odd tension of like, you have to undo the anti-blackness and you also have to experience systemic oppression, like at you. It's a hard question. I've been thinking about like, where do I land on this? And one thing that's coming to mind is like, what I struggle with is sometimes I perceive people using this of, oh, but you know, I want to get through as a way to just be like, but I really like this friend and like, I want to keep them. So I'm just going to say that like, it's important to have Mm -hmm. differing opinions so I can keep this one problematic friend. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't feel good to me. 
So I think it like, for me, it would depend on how authentic and genuine that reaching out is, right? Like how often do you talk about racism? Is it once a year during Thanksgiving or is this actually an effort you're making to do that education? Um, yeah, like, is it performative? Are you just sharing stuff on Instagram and then calling it a day? Um, one thing that I would like to say, even as like a black person with my family members, we are having these tough conversations too. It's not like that we just all agree on everything <laughs> too. And that's just like my family, we go back and forth on these topics too. Um, so I just like want to encourage people like it's, if you're surrounding yourself with the people that you do feel comfortable with, and hopefully you do that, um, and that you feel like have a sense of like empathy and can, you can have these conversations with, um, hopefully those are people that you already have around you, mm -hmm. um, that you can feel supported by and be able to have a healthy conversation. Despite, even besides just with race, you should have those type of people around you um, to talk about things with. Well, yeah, and I do sort of wonder sometimes, I mean, it is such a nuanced conversation and it is really complicated. Like you were saying, Ashna, it's like, if you have the problematic friend, well, I guess, yeah, like you said, if you're not doing anything actively to reach them or connect with them, like on any level, then that's kind of pointless. But then I also see some people where I'm like, if you're unfriending the people that have these problematic views, who is reaching this person? Like, not that it's directly your responsibility, but it is something to ponder. Like, who is connecting with this person? Is this person just getting in the feedback loop of their Facebook feed of all like their white supremacist friends who are like, yes, Trump 2020. Like, you know, I don't know. And I don't think it's a simple answer, but I think it's definitely something to 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 think about and to ponder in your in in everyone's relationships. And I think it's like all true at the same time. Yeah. Like you said, it is just so nuanced because I know for myself personally, like um, after the murder of George Floyd, all of a sudden people are coming out of the woodworks with loud opinions. And so I'm having these conversations with family members that we'd never had before. And I was like, oh, I didn't realize that I hate you. <laughs> but, you know, you're having all these conversations that are so necessary. But then I'm walking away from it going like, you know what? I'm exhausted. I'm going to cut them out. And then I was laying in bed and I shut down a family member. And I was like, we can't even, no, we're done. Da, da, da. And I was laying in bed the, that night and I'm like, who who the fuck like from my perspective i'm like who the fuck am i i am a white woman who has never experienced racism i'm not going to experience racism and now i'm having a couple tough days having to go back and forth with a family member and i'm throwing in the towel so it's just like no girlfriend you got to get back out there you have to have these conversations of course like you you know protecting your mental health but like you said it is so nuanced because you don't want to give the platform you don't want to use it as a way to be like well i like that friend so i'm just going to give them a pass um but i specifically you know for myself as a as a white woman i'm like no this is this is where i you know i can't i can't block all the family members who have racist opinions because, you know, cut to maybe 13 year old Jessica and God knows what my Twitter might have said that I had no idea that I was putting out there. You know what I mean? Totally. Yeah. 
Okay, Brads, we have to pause for one moment. Um, something to always highly prioritize is mental health. It's beyond important to communicate with someone. And with the current quarantine circumstances, I think it's left a lot of people feeling really lonely and lacking that line of communication. And I believe a therapist right now is a top priority. It is. And it's actually made a lot easier with the help of Talkspace. Um, when I first joined Talkspace, it was even easier than I hoped it would be. I hear this from so many of my friends and I've experienced it myself that finding a therapist can be a whole additional layer of stress. Mm -hmm. And sometimes like that's the last thing you need in in the moment on the hunt for a therapist. But um, you have to consider, do you feel connected to them? Are they covered by insurance? Where are they located? The hurdles are endless. But like you said, Talkspace has changed the game entirely. They're on a mission to make therapy accessible for all, and their online therapy platform allows you to choose from thousands of therapists trained in over 40 different specialties, so you can get the support you need no matter what you're going through. And it's affordable, like a fraction of the cost of in-person therapy. And because the whole process is done through Talkspace's secure private platform, you'll be able to send unlimited messages to your therapist 24-7 whenever you need it most. Not having to wait days and days before talking about something you need to talk about right now. Yeah, and the bottom line is we all need someone to talk to. So Talkspace wants to give us the support we deserve at a price we can afford and as a listener of this podcast, you'll get $100 off your first month of Talkspace. To match with your perfect therapist, go to Talkspace.com or download the app. Make sure to use code CHATTY and you're going to get $100 off your first month and you can show your, show your support for the show. So that's code CHATTY at Talkspace.com. Well, I love therapy, but something else that I love that in my opinion, is one of life's greatest simple feelings that is underappreciated is a new pair of socks. I swear I could be having the worst day. And when I slip into a pair of fresh socks, it's kind of like a reset for me. Um, That might sound weird, but I just know there are listeners out there that have that feeling. And I feel very understood. I know you see me. And if you don't understand, well, maybe it's because you're not wearing the right socks. Mm. Mm. My new favorites are my features socks. They're actually pretty much the only pair that I will reach for these days. They're that good. I am wearing them right now in my boots. Yes. I am. I never thought I would hold a strong, a, such a strong opinion on socks, but I have to agree with you. Features makes these socks called the Merino 10. They're made from a 200 thread count Merino wool blend. And I swear, when I put those babies on, my feet are in heaven. Mm-hmm. They are so good. And the team at Features knows it. Each pair of socks comes with a lifetime guarantee that any point you're unsatisfied, you get a replacement pair. No questions asked. That's incredible. Yeah, crazy. And if merino wool isn't your fabric of choice, Features has plenty more to choose from. They're actually known for the performance socks and have uh, been loved by athletes for a long time. But they're not just for elite runners anymore. Their range of socks is perfect for cycling, cross training, um, boot wearing, boot wearing, a walk around the neighborhood in the boots or the tennies. Listen, I have very sensitive feet. Like I am a blister queen. And I'll be honest, since wearing Features, even on days when I'm doing a lot of walking, my puppies slip out of my shoes Mm. and at the end of the day they've been perfectly protected there's no blisters features has been really hooking me up nice and right now you can get ten dollars off your first pair of features just in time for the holidays treat yourself to some new socks it's funny like when you were a kid you hated getting socks now Now i'm just like you love it (laughs) yes features please let the socks rain down (laughs) yes please go to features.com slash chatty for ten dollars off your first pair that's F-E-E-T-U-R-E-S dot com slash chatty. So like features, but spelled like feet. Well, 
on that note, like, what about, what does then allyship look like beyond what we saw in June of black squares and people reposting articles? What are some, like, actionable steps that that we all can take to, you know, I don't want to be corny, but, like, to work towards a better tomorrow? Like, what does that really look like in practicality in daily life? Related to what we were just talking about, like, um, I've been trying to think about what is in my power. So what are my communities and what contexts do I exist and what change within my role as a graduate student can I make in those places? So like with this family stuff, too, I think it's important to think about who are the family members that I'm sensing more openness with and who can I give my time to because time, our time and energy is important. Um, so with like anti-racism now, I'll think about, okay, like I can get maybe involved with the graduate student government and can I talk about racism through there? Or with my graduate program, can I advocate for us to have more readings from folks of color or whatever those small things are so that I'm not just focused on the bigger things because I do think donations and protesting and all of those are important, but if we also have to look at like right around us. So other things I also think about um, and part of this is colonization, but I primarily have had white friends in the U.S., have felt more comfortable around white people because I think for most of the time I want it to be white. Um, so I've really been trying to think about what context am I putting myself in socially to even expose myself to non-white people mm. and to be able to be in relationships with them. Um, like what places am I going to eat Um who do I decide to follow up with after a class and like really trying to examine those decisions and then also think about like what reactions am I having to people of color around me? Um, so a recent one that was like fascinating to think about, I'm in a class with black women and I've never really been in a class with more than one black woman. And I left thinking, oh man, I feel really intimidated by their wisdom and then I was thinking, you know, okay, that's positive, but it's still really shitty because you're still reading them as intimidating and just trying to do that work of like examining my reactions as mm. much as I can. I agree that that's super important. We talk about implicit bias a lot in healthcare, specifically because so many providers have implicit bias and we're like, how do we counteract these biases and make sure that it doesn't affect the way that people of color receive care, the quality of care that they're receiving. Could you touch on what that, what implicit bias means and maybe what are some examples of it? Yeah, so um, implicit bias is basically just the subconscious bias that we don't realize we're holding this assumption because um, it's something that we learned at such a young age or it became so ingrained in you know our knowledge that we don't even do a second thought when we're thinking that bias, right? And one of the examples that we can talk about specifically in the medical field is the study that was done in 2016 or 2017 found that among medical students and doctors who prescribed pain medications, they thought that Black people had a higher pain tolerance, so they weren't prescribing them the same amount of medication and their treatment was affected in that way. Um, but so many of these people are just operating in that space of like thinking that that's correct without reevaluating why they think that. Implicit bias in the criminal justice system is, as lawyers, um, 
who are, it's a predominantly white field, um, even in public defense, um, where our clients are primarily black, indigenous people of color. Um, and the discussions around race and racism are so important. Um, and we're routinely going through all different kinds of versions of implicit bias training or other trainings and learnings around race and racism. But it, it, there's only so much that implicit bias training can do, right? Like there's studies that show that the more you learn about implicit bias, the more lazy you get mm -hmm. and the less um, active you are in challenging your own, your own privilege and your own racism or other fill in the blank systemic oppression um, misogyny, heteronormativity, all those. Um, and, you know, one, one of the, um, topics that you had like suggested in your questions was like, what, what do you do once you're woke enough? You know, once you've learned implicit bias, once you've gone through this training, like, what do you do now? And, um, one thing that I've been thinking about is I feel like, especially as a white person or a white passing person, we should be turning around and grabbing the hand of the person who's a little bit farther down on the ladder than us and bringing them up to where we are too. Um, and, you know, that looks, that doesn't look like necessarily fighting on Facebook or fighting on Instagram and things like that, but it does look like, you know, reaching out to friends um, and just like growing discussions about the world around us and it, and I mean I, I feel like we all have to do this together and I think if we stand you know on our high horse and and label ourselves as the most woke and and the most educated and the most greatest at understanding race and racism the less we're going to be good at fighting racism Ashna, you touched on something that was interesting. You were talking basically, I mean, what you were basically saying was you're thinking of ways to insert yourself into spaces of people, people of color. And I think that's really interesting because a lot of the times you can just see throughout history, our expectation is for black or brown people to insert themselves into white spaces in order for diversity to occur or in order for segregation to end. You look at it um, in the examples of school segregation. Did we send white people, white kids into black schools? Fuck no, absolutely not. Well, for a reason, because usually due to all the reasons we've been talking about, the quality of education was far lower. And that's not really much different now, right? Like we see... We talk about, I, I remember there was a podcast that NPR did talking about this in particular, where they were saying like, even now when we try to do, when we try to end se segregation, which I believe California is actually one of the most segregated school systems in the country. You're nodding your head. Yes, Amanda. Is that true? Yeah. It's, I mean, we're more segregated now than we were. I mean, I've read that we are more segregated now than in the Jim Crow era. Yeah, and that's California, where we think we're like woke land and like we're doing everything right here. But um, 
we do not try to solve the problem. We try to solve the problem by placing black students in white schools. But some people have come up with the radical idea. What is what if we as white parents were to put our children in predominantly black schools? You know, because what happens when we do that, if that's an option, is then who has the voice like in the parent, you know, parent to teacher, parent to faculty, um, like situations? Unfortunately, for all the reasons we've been talking about, it's usually white parents who can sort of lobby and try to get um, better education for all students. So I think that there's some ideas that we think of as radical that that we as white people and white passing people, we need to take those steps to insert ourselves into spaces in order to use our privilege and to take a hit to like get shit accomplished. And I don't mean that in like a white savior way. I mean like examining what are practical ways that that like we can make an impact with our privilege. Yeah, I mean, I think racism exists like both like interpersonal and then institutional. And so like we have to grab like really similarly to what Megan was saying, like you have to grab the person next to you and like have a book club and listen to podcasts, you know, like it sounds like you were listening to white, white, nice white parents, you know, like you need to go read like how to be an anti-racist and talk about it. Right. And kind of like have your venting group of like, I don't know how to do this, do that so that you can then look at your institution. Right. And have questions about like, who are the principals of schools who are 80% of teachers in the United States are white. So like, who are we hiring to become teachers who are on our like boards of directors and like who gets money, like our DEI jobs, even at schools, like you begin to just, I think the more that you read, the more that you can become curious and critical. And I think like you have to do that interpersonal work before you can be like, well, that law is racist. And like Mm. these economic policies, like uphold whiteness, like Mm. you have to look at biases and stereotypes and all that awful stuff. One of my um, friends during the George Floyd stuff had this Instagram story where she was like, it is heartbreaking to see all of these white people post their black squares who still haven't apologized for calling me the N-word or whatever that was in college. And that's really stuck with me. Um, So I also try to like reach out to people I've harmed as I'm learning more, Mm -hmm. as I like understand the racist harm I've caused, I'll make it a point to apologize for that. So that they don't then later have to be like, what is she doing? She never came back to me and the learning that she had because of the harm she caused me. Mm -hmm. And I think that's something I like, I noticed there was like a lack of when um, there was this huge social media movement of, like claiming that you're woke and like that you know the injustices that are happening. It was people just claiming that they're woke, but not saying or presenting anything about like how they maybe have perpetuated these systems in their lives as well. It's just like, Oh, I know I'm not racist. That's it. I, I have black friends. I do this. I do that. And then it wasn't just like that critical thinking of, why is this happening right now? Why has this been happening? How has this happened in communities that I am from? How has this, how have I seen this in my job, in school, my friendships, the people that I'm around? And so that's like something that I want to see more of is just like that deeper thought within it rather than it just be like, this is the trend Mm -hmm. um, that's happening right now. And so that's why, like, I think despite the whichever way the election goes, 
this conversation is going to um, need to keep happening for a while now. And hopefully like the new generations of students that are coming up, like they're just going to have a lot, a lot of different perspective than what we had when we were in school, um, mm -hmm. because we were just like frankly taught lies when we were in school. So um, I'm positive that the next generation will have like a different viewpoint of the society around them um, through like education. Hmm. Interesting what you bring up too, because I saw someone on Instagram post, um, they did like an Insta story where they asked white people to describe like what systemic racist racism means. And most every white person that did the story like described like the systems of power that were outside of their selves rather than seeing like their families and their communities as like a system of power that you know continues and perpetuates experiences of racism hmm. it's so interesting too because it's just that's you know it's just another example of privilege where it's like, I don't want to be uncomfortable and look like actually like in my own bubble. So I'm going to say this is what <laughs> they have the problem in this in this way, this group, they should be fixing it in that system versus being like, all right, well, the fact of the matter is, is that I participated in conversations and groups and a community um, that was problematic for years. And I need to own up to that and have conversations internally with my family with my friends from that time make apologies all those things right we see it even on a more global scale too like europe over here is like look at those trumpers in the u.s embarrassing and it's like you guys are the og colonizers what the fuck are you talking about this is literally all traced back to you like yeah it's your fault so we don't take any ownership yeah. <laughs> But yeah, it like happens on a really big global scale and it happens on like super small community scales too. It's so much easier to act like we're not a part of the problem. And I think what you said um, about like maybe people should be talking more about how they do it. I think that contributes to what you were saying, Amanda, about cultivating this future culture of like curiosity and being able to ask questions and being able to fuck up because I think that those two things go hand in hand we haven't seen people being able to admit that they fucked up before they get caught right mm -hmm. like everyone's other I think there's so many people on social media or like celebrities or whatever who are just like Hopefully no one finds that tweet from 2014 <laughs> instead of just like coming out and been like, I have perpetuated these super dangerous systems. And like, I'm not saying this, like I haven't done, I need to do the same. I think we all need to do more of that. I mean, I think that I've, I just had this conversation with students. Like if we say that we live in a racist society, then like whether you say the N word or not, right? Like you are racist, mm. right? Like whether you think that you perpetuated or not, whether you're a BIPOC person or not, like you grew up in a system that formed you and taught you lessons and that fed you a lot of lies. And so like everyone's racist. Like I hate to, I hate to spoil it, but like every single person has to do this work. Can we talk a little bit more about, um, a couple people have touched on these lies that we've been fed growing up. Can we get into, yeah, <laughs> get into some of these like practical facts of lies we've been fed in our society, in our education system? I think that we are 
um, fed lies about our criminal system all the time. Mm. Yeah, um, if you want to get into some cold hard facts, that would be great. <laughs> all of the TV shows and media that we consume are propaganda that teach us that prosecutors and cops and judges are all in these heroic positions mm. where um, they're not only as individuals, but as groups of people designed to keep us safe, to keep communities safe, to do the best and, and advocate for victims and bring justice to the world. Um, spoiler alert, not true. Um, I know that once I have a family, these sorts of propaganda TV shows are going to be disallowed from my house. Um, if we think about it, if police and prisons keep us safe, then the United States, states being the most policed and the most heavily incarcerated country in the world, would be the safest country in the world. We're far, far, far from that. Um, we make up 25% of the entire global incarcerated population, despite the fact that we make up less than 5% of the general global population. So the disproportionality there is absurd. Um, and it, that's just one lie of very, very many lies. But, and it's because our, our criminal justice system wasn't built um, as a system that we as a society have grown to need out of necessity of the dangers of just natural human life. You know, we live in big countries with lots of people. Of course, there's gonna be violence and property damage and all of these different things. So we're going to need police and prisons and courts to correct that. But in fact, we know that crime is not random. Crime for the vast majority of the time, it happens when people's basic needs aren't being met. And in the capitalist colonial system that we have now, these people, the vast majority of people in this country, their basic needs are not being met. We don't want to meet their needs. And we're creating and perpetuating systems that are falsely creating crime rates and then incarcerating people because of the lack of resources that we refuse to give them. Mm. So I'm a police abolitionist, I'm a prison abolitionist, and I could talk for hours about this, but for the most part, the biggest lie that I see to this day is that police and prisons are necessary to keep us safe when in fact they make our communities more dangerous. Um, I think that the biggest lie that is coming to my mind right now is that same one as Becca, where we were just kind of taught that like, oh, white people came to America and it was fine. And like, we didn't displace like millions of Native Americans. Um, and, you know, there's, direct ties between like historical racism and historical colonialism with like biological health outcomes that exist in these populations today that are not related to any biological inherent differences between those groups, but are related to like what Becca mentioned earlier, like intergenerational trauma and also just like the historical context. Mm. 
Can you give any further examples of those? Yeah. Um, so one example that I had in mind is uh, in Arizona, there's a tribe called the Pima tribe, and they've historically lived along the Gila River. Um, when white settlers came to that area, they displaced that tribe's access to the water system, which in turn impacted their agricultural and economic systems because they're not able to eat and produce the foods that they've historically ate. Um, when the government came in in like the mid-1900s, uh, they were giving food subsidies to this community. And many of the foods that were then available to them were high in unhealthy ingredients like fat and white flour. Um, nowadays, like subsequently, a lot of tribes in Arizona are among the highest rates of type 2 diabetes in the world. And they have a rate of diabetes seven times greater than the national average. Yeah, <laughs> loaded right up there. <laughs> Just like you, 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 you know, Becca says, give one example and everyone's able to be like, I have 15. It's like, how, just how many, you know, anyways, yeah. please continue. Yeah. And I mean, like there's a, the diet and exercise now that like white colonialism has kind of just made easily accessible to these people. Like um, it's going to have that intergenerational effect that Becca was talking about. Like diet and exercise can induce epigenetic changes that affect the amount of insulin we're able to produce. And this is going to like further, um, further induce those health, health disparities. Hmm. Um, well, something that I just feel like is not addressed um, like at all within um, middle school and high school education is just the long-term impacts of, um, imperialism, European imp imperialism throughout the world, and how that has destroyed many thriving uh, countries. Um, I think just like the Rwandan genocide is one that comes to mind that we never really brought up. I had to learn about that on my own. Um, we hear a lot about like, um, like the Holocaust, of course, um, but something like the Rwandan genocide where Europeans went in and basically pitted groups of people against each other. And this may have, this was based on like skin complexion and um, like uh, all, all these different uh, differences between the people. It's just an internal conflict within a country, um, within South Africa as well with um, the apartheid system. And even just like here, um, more on the, Western um, hemisphere, you could say, is just like the think of like DR in Haiti and the clashes that happen um, between those uh, nations, and that what a lot of that was because of um, colonialism and going in and. Um, Sorry, my dog is distracted. <laughs> that happens when I'm teaching too. And the kids are just like, all right, stop teaching and tell the dog to teach. <laughs> uh, so yeah, and I think that's just something that needs to be brought up. Um, when, when I was learning about European colonization, it was about um, like white people going out and just spreading their religion and spreading mm -hmm. all of these wonderful ideas and what they believed in. Mm -hmm. um, and it wasn't also that like, some of these missionaries were like killing people as well and like forcing conversion and doing like these 
atrocities that are never like spoken about in like the normal education system. And to me, it's like I had to take standardized tests for content that wasn't, I, I feel, a full account of what happened throughout our history. Yeah, and there's like terms and stuff too that are built into our education, like third world country. When you talk about like first world versus third world, then you're automatically creating a hierarchy of where people are, right? And we just talk about it being like about development or about progress. Um, but that inherently is has like built-in xenophobia and racism where it's like, oh, these tribes, they don't have shit figured out because they don't have iPhones. Like, you know, we need to go in there and like show them the real way to live. And I thought about it when you were talking about missionaries because we were taught about, I don't know why I can't think of his name, the man who was Jim Elliott. Jim Elliott. This is something that we were taught in Christian culture as this man was like the pinnacle of sainthood. Basically, the story of Jim Elliot is that there was a remote tribe that had never heard the gospel. I'm using air quotes for audio listeners. And they were a tribe that were was known to kill missionaries that would come. Now, when we were taught this as kids, it was like, oh my God, what horrible people. They would just kill these people who are trying to show them the love of God. But when you look throughout history, these colonizers christian and otherwise did not come to like sing kumbaya and hold hands they came to steal resources we see that in the united states um and many other places to steal resources and to ultimately enslave people or take them away from the culture that was theirs in exchange for their superior culture you know native american children who were forced into white schools to forced into christianity basically stripped of their identity as a culture not to mention like their resources and like their their wealth in their communities that were you know wealth in their own way so jim elliott went into this place that they was known to kill missionaries and he was murdered and became like a Christian saint and eventually his wife and this was like oh my god she was such a wonderful person because she went to these savages who killed her husband and eventually befriended them basically eventually that tribe that was previously untouched then became colonized through these missionaries who were so persistent that even though you know the message was like hey please don't bother us um you know, it's just like, it, it's crazy that that was sold to us as some sort of beautiful story of like Christian persistence when instead it was actually quite violent, uh, quite a violent act on the side of those people coming in, not the people defending their their culture and their territory. Anyway, a rant, but it's just an example of something that was is still so built into like Christian missionary culture and just the Western understanding of the world around us. That's like education as a whole too. You know, it's like in California, you learn like you have the mission project. So like when you're learning Mm -hmm. the history of California in fourth grade, you like learn about uh, Junipero Serra who literally massacred indigenous people. And like at the end of your unit, you like build a mission or draw a mission and you like are upholding that he spread Catholicism and that that's so wonderful. And I just like, I just wish that, more educators would be questioning like whose narratives are you sharing? Mm-hmm. Because like, you're just, you're just sharing this murderer um, who has like indigenous blood on his hands. And like, instead, can your students name like whose land you're on, like whose indigenous mm-hmm. land you are on? And like, no, probably not. Like my students and I had to talk about it on indigenous people's day. Right. Like 
that's not normal curriculum time. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a small insignificant story compared to this, but it is relevant um, to just Western understandings of the world. But when I moved to college and it was in Vermont, they assigned international students a host family. And so my host family, the first time I meet them, their first question to me is what continent is India on? So that was like, oh, cool. Second question, how did you feel growing up in a war-torn country? Which then relates to like, what do you know about third world countries, so to speak? And I was like, oh, India, I didn't grow up around where I'm actually from Mumbai. It's a pretty big city. Um, and then their third question was, have I ever eaten an apple before? And I was like, yes, export and import are important processes in this world. Um, but yeah, I think these like this lack of education then carries in our interactions. And I think just one of your questions is like, what are microaggressions? Mm-hmm. And microaggressions are these things, right? These like seemingly sweet, small questions that are actually really harmful because mm-hmm. they keep perpetuating these systems of power. Mm. I would love to add something to the microaggression too, because that's like an area that I'm really interested in just talking about how experiences of racism become embodied. Um, Microaggressions that people of color face in their everyday life lead to high levels of stress. And it's normal to have like a small amount of stress throughout your life. But whenever you're chronically experiencing over and over again stress, whether it be a micro or macroaggression, um, it's obviously not healthy for an individual. And it can affect things like the immune system and the nervous system function. that's like the main way that we see racism being embodied and this can affect the individual who's experiencing the stressor and also affect like their kids. I mean, a horrible example of it is when you look at maternal mortality, right? Um, a black woman with a master's degree in education has statistically worse outcomes than a white woman with a junior high education. So when people use the exact, I feel like I've brought this up before on the podcast, but it's just well, it's to staggering. me such a clear yeah. example of what you're talking about, which is clearly there's environmental factors and stressors beyond even just basic resources um, that are af- directly affecting health outcomes, you know, because people will say like, oh, it just probably has to do with drug use or lack of access to prenatal care or lack of. Uh, adequate nutrition, which, by the way, are obviously all linked back to race and to racist structures in our country. But it's like you can't even use those arguments when it comes to that particular statistic. There's no reason why a black woman with a master's degree in education would have worse birth outcomes than a white woman with a junior high education, except for except for racism and the stress of microaggressions and probably implicit bias of the healthcare workers working with said woman. And also like yeah. climate change. Oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. Um, I was just going to say, you know, it's like, we haven't even looked at like climate, you know, um, EJ had mentioned COVID before and like thinking about mortality rates for black women, like also what types of like, like environmental racism is real, like which areas of your city are most polluted, like, mm-hmm. Where And so it's like those cause health risks. Like where I'm from, there's a toxic um, lake and like who lives around it. Like it's not the rich people by La Quinta 
Mm-hmm. By the La Quinta Hotel, right? Like where the bathroom was being filmed. Like Chris Harrison is not set up near. <laughs> never, like never, he would never. <laughs> no, you know, and it's like, and who lives there? Like migrant farm workers, right? Mm-hmm. And so then, who has like pre like health conditions? Migrant farm workers mm-hmm. who are like already have like all the like education, nationality, language barriers, like all these other systems against them. Now, like their physical locality is also putting them at risk. Climate change is also, it's also affecting um, food systems and what food is available to who, right? Um, and this is also a great example. I mean, not a great example because it's terrible that it exists, but in indigenous communities, like their food systems are being largely disrupted because of climate change. Can we just circle back around to wrap up this conversation? Can we talk about like, what, what can we do? Let's start out with the basics about educate education, educating yourself. Yeah, I'm not talking about education as a whole, but educating yourself. Like, let's go, let's let's all talk through the steps of like from getting woke, air quotes in the first place, to moving past that to real action in your community. And I would love if we can just hear about both of those. If anyone, I'd love to hear from everyone about um, both of those sides of the coin. Yeah, I can start. Um, I think on a personal note, uh, for me, it's been really important to acknowledge things that I learned growing up and, you know, see where I have assumptions and why those assumptions might be wrong and what's the cause of those assumptions. Um, That's just been a personal endeavor that I've been going on in the last few months. But um, in a more, speaking on like the academic system that I'm a part of, one of the moves that is really being pushed in research is so that it's community-based and that way we're not taking advantage of the groups that we're researching, right? And it centers the voice of the people who you want to work with, um, whatever their race, so, you know, gender, whatever it may be. And instead of being like, I think that there's this problem in this community. So that's what I'm going to research, like actually talking to the community and seeing what their needs are and what they want to get out of the research. Um, I think for educating, what I found helpful is to go back to some of the older works by Black identified authors, because there is so much awesome literature. Like I recently read Black Power, and that feels just as relevant, right? Um, And the way I like to read in my book clubs is we'll do a really short portion so we can spend most of the time being like, and how does this connect to our program? Or how does this connect to Purdue? Or whatever context, I find that really helpful. So we're not getting stuck in the theory doing the like, personal action. Um, and for action, like, I think it's hard to think of one specific thing that people should do. But what I like to think about is like, what am I grounded in? So if somebody later came up to me and said, you know, what are you doing for anti-racism? Like, will I feel confident in my answer? Um, and when I get there, that's when I know I'm doing enough work that like feels good to me and hopefully you also have people in community you're talking to about it so you're not just like one person doing things alone yeah I think grabbing your friends um holding people accountable I think as much as you can as much bandwidth as you have and knowing that yeah anti-racism work looks different for every person like I can't be out on the streets because I'm meeting in person with students. Right. And that like our safety and the safety of my black and brown students, like 
we have to trust each other. And so like, I can't take to the streets, but like you bet I'm going to write a curriculum. And so I think whatever your skill is, like you have to use it, right? Whether it's graphic design or songwriting, like my sibling is a pianist, right? And like, so how can they, how can they use that work to further the cause? Um, And I think that it's like a stay in your lane and always center black voices. I think that that is like the main thing, like read black authors, um, listen to black music, like definitely critique like what you've been shown and fed growing up. Like look at the movies that you're watching, the TV shows that you're watching and asking like whose voices are centered. Yeah. Just um, doing the research that you can in the areas that you focus your life around. Um, I would say just like for like a social media basis, like who are you following even on your Instagram? Are you following people of different perspectives and lifestyles? Um, Are you supporting businesses on Instagram or whatever social media platform um, that is black owned? Um, Are you like doing research into uh, organizations that you can um, support? Uh, we didn't really talk about like um, reparations or anything, but just what is the ways that you can redistribute the money like in your community um, uh, to uh, communities of color uh, to help with what their goals are or whatever path that they're taking as well. Um, So just opening yourself up uh, to different perspectives and lifestyles and uh, you might mess up along the way. We all do, but just like, just keep pushing forward with that. Can you touch on what, what reparations are and what that can look like since we didn't touch on it? I think that's a great conversation to, to briefly discuss. Yeah. Um, so this, it's been a lot of controversy about this and, um, because like the historically uh, black people within our country have had basically uh, like we are behind economically because of like institutions of slavery um, laws that have been set in place. Um, So reparations would be funding to try to uplift the community Mm -hmm. so that we are more like, I guess you could say like an equal playing ground. So that has been something that has been like controversial within like politics and everything. Uh, I've also heard just people say like reparations are like, that's racist against other groups of people and like affirmative action is racist. Um, But when, again, like when we talk about racism, that is a system where a group is showing their superiority through oppression. And so things like reparations or like affirmative action. That's not saying that black people are better or like the dominant race. It's just that we need a way to uplift ourselves within this country. Yeah. And building off of that um, is, you know, a lot of content creators on social media, like TikTok, for example, where a lot of education, especially of, you know, the Gen Z, um, crew is on TikTok and these content creators have their Venmos and their cash apps and all these things. Um, when you can throw a few dollars here and there around, pay content creators for the education mm-hmm. that they're providing you, um, support them 
in any way that you can, you know, views, shares, whatever. But if you do have the finances, um, financial support is a really big deal. Mm. Um, I'd also highly recommend in that same sort of vein when you're purchasing literature um, or interested in, in reviewing literature on racism to help expand your education, actually purchase those works when they're written by um, authors of color. Um, uh, there's a lot of very beautifully written books um, about the subjective experience of prison by uh, Black people who've been in prison, many of whom on death row. And actually purchasing those books can make a real difference in their lives and can help spread the word about the reality of the prison experience in the U.S. By the way, Broads, we're going to have links below. I believe we've asked everyone to kind of share uh, via email like per- their favorite like links and resources. So we'll put all those in the, in the episode show notes. That way you can look at them even if they're not directly... Uh, discussed here. I had just, Amanda, you really just said one thing that really um, clicked something in my mind. You were basically like, find what your niche is. And I felt, I feel like that's the best answer. Like figure out what it is you care about. Like before you even, before or after you do your anti-racism personal work, it's like, what do you care about? Do you care about kids? Obviously, you know, both of you care about children. You care about education, you know? Do you care about um, books? Do you care about like birth like I do? Do you care about cooking? Whatever it is, I think like find a way to channel that into your community. And like, I even thought about it just now as we were talking like with the election, you know, and people being like, you know, um, obviously we're saying saying all this before the election, but like if you care about um, having universal health care or if you care about, for example, people being taken care of uh, with like, um, you know, welfare and all those sorts of things, like how can you do that in your community? Like I just thought of like there's a Facebook group that's like buy nothing. It's called like buy nothing project. What if you were just a part of that and the things around your house, you can find homes for them to go to, you know, and this isn't like necessarily directly correlated to racism, but what are there ways in your community that you can show up for the things that you care about beyond just saying like, throw our hands up in the air. This person's president. We're fucked. Like, how can you show up for the things that you care about for the people around you, like directly around you, like literally your neighbors? Um, I just thought of that now. And just like, I think that that's like a really good challenge to all of us. Totally. And I feel like, by the way, these crickets are going off I, and I apologize. I was literally <laughs> getting scared. I didn't know. I felt like there's like they're, they're all coming descending. in. <laughs> 2020 you know probably locust or something um but uh like i feel like all of you broads the five of you are a perfect example of exactly what you're talking about becca stepping showing into things up, yeah. that you all are passionate about and showing up in that way and we are so grateful for all of you thank you so much for taking your time out and sharing i mean honest to god we have the coolest smartest fan base I know. <laughs> I know. I was as I as we were doing both these episodes, I'm like, oh damn, all these people listen to our fucking episodes. Like how embarrassing. <laughs> I know. I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm just so I just need to, you know, I need you all to pop in occasionally and just, you know, do the show for us. Um, but thank you, seriously, so much for coming on. Um, thank you so, so much. And again, broads, all the uh links are gonna be in the episode notes. And we appreciate you all and uh let's do our work, huh? 
Yeah, and with that, I guess chat soon. Chat soon? <laughs>